guys were just as loud, but I was softer. Um, as Zach kind of mentioned, just the very beginning of our purpose statement, why we're here, that Tumble Bible Church exists to glorify Christ by making disciples to reach the nations. Um, and today I want to just share just a little bit before we uh, get into the sermon today from Nehemiah about that effort. And I want you to kind of see how the pieces come together even just in the way our calendar is, is, is designed. Um, there's coming up on June the 4th a, um, a, a golf tournament that's a fundraiser for our short-term missions events this summer. So there's a good number of trips that are going on. And June the 4th there is a golf tournament that's intended to raise money as well as create opportunities to hear um, just in personal context during that time about what God's doing, encourage people in mission. So if you have questions about that, there's a flyer, an insert in the program. There's also a table where some, some folks from our missions team will be as you head out. If you have any questions about if you want to sponsor a team or you'd like to get a team together, maybe you want to help sponsor a whole but for your company, any questions about the event and how you can help or get involved or just go play some golf, I want to encourage you to do that. Um, because this, this idea of reaching the nations, of getting together so that we can take this gospel where it is yet to be preached and embraced is important to us. And, and then at the same time, this is Mother's Day and this is Baby Dedication Sunday, and, uh, which is very much focused on what kind of people are going to be uh, coming out of this place. As they grow here, as they learn here, as the community of faith surrounds these families, what, what are we going to impress upon them? And there's a phrase that, that, that I caught that has stuck with me that says, we are here to, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth and for a thousand generations if need be. That until the work is done, we'll keep pressing. So it's important that we invest in, in kids and in our children's ministry. And so I want to encourage you, as we consider this idea of reaching the nations, that it really starts even now with small kids here. That investing in them, that ministering to them, that encouraging them, that serving at things like Children's Church and VBS and praying for these parents are very important elements of the gospel getting to the nations. It's the groundwork that makes that possible. And it's also important on Mother's Day to say thank you to the mothers here. Because this discipleship, this growth in the faith starts in the home. And while the Bible is clear that that the father and husband is to be the lead in the home in terms of making that a priority, generally for most families, mom is with the kids more. And she nurtures and loves them and cares for them in the Lord. And so I want to encourage you moms, before we even start teaching from the Bible, but just this, is that is that what you do day in and day out has eternal significance. Um, caring for small children, caring for teenagers, by the grace of God, is important work that has eternal weight. And, and I don't want you to think for a second that it goes unnoticed or unappreciated by God. And so I want to encourage you in that. We're going to start now today in the book of Nehemiah, where we've been. Uh, we start in Nehemiah chapter 3, which is actually a section of the, of the book that is very easy to just kind of blow through. To just read the story and then go, okay, now we've got a list of people and step away from the list so that you can get back to the action. But I don't think for the Jewish readers who first saw this that that was the case because ultimately the story of the people in Nehemiah is not the story of, of characters that they've never seen or heard of, but characters that might have been family members. 
great-grandfather and great-grandmother and their faithfulness. So it's a story that, that isn't just historical, but it's familial for the people of Israel as they look back on it. And so it tells us really a list of, of how the work begins in rebuilding the wall. So maybe we backtrack if you haven't been here with us. The Reader's Digest version of the story is this, is that God had called the people to Himself to be a light among the nations. And He had given a covenant with them that if they would follow Him, if they would seek after Him and obey His laws, that He would bless them. And that they would be blessed like no other nation. And the goal wasn't just for them to be happy and healthy. The goal was for them to be an example to all the nations of what it was to walk in step and harmony with the true God who created the heavens and the earth. But the covenant also said that if they turned from Him, if they rejected that calling, that He would discipline them harshly. That He would come down and allow other nations to overrun them. And the people turn from Him and God keeps His word. And so, Nehemiah wakes up where Israel has been in captivity for years. Judah's been in captivity for years. And the city of Jerusalem, God's holy city, is in desolation. Nehemiah feels a burden that God has placed on his heart to go and to lead the charge to rebuild the city. And so he gets the king of Persia to fund the project, to send him with military escort. He arrives in the city and communicates his plan to the people. And their response is, let's get to work. But even then, there's criticism and opposition out of the gates for them. But it doesn't slow them. It doesn't deter them from their work. And so today, in Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1, we begin to hear what happened and who did what. So you have an ancient city with stone walls surrounding it and wooden gates at each opening. The walls were kind of reduced to, to rubble heaps, but maybe there was a pile there. And so the weakest point was, of course, the gates that were wide open. So that's where they begin the work Look at me, we're going to read just the first 12 verses here in chapter 3. When Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate, they consecrated and set its doors, they constructed it as far as the tower of the hundred, as far as the tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zachar, the son of Emery, built. The sons of Hassaniah built the fish gate, and they laid its beams and set its doors and its bolts and bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hekaz. Good name, guys. We should have used that. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Baruchah, the son of Meshezebel, repaired. And then next to them, Zadok, the son of Banna, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. And Joeda, the son of Peseh, and Meshulam, the son of Besodia, repaired the gates of Yeshana. And they laid its beams and set its doors and its bolts and bars. And next to them repaired Melatia, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maronathite. The men of Gibeah and Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. And next to them, Uziel, the son of Herahiah, the goldsmiths repaired. Next to Hananiah, the, one of the perfumers repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half of the district of Jerusalem, repaired. And next to them, Jediah, the son of Harumapha, repaired the opposite his house. And next to him, Hattuch, the son of Hashbaniah, repaired. And Malkijah, the son of Haram, and Hasab, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired. Another section of the Tower of the Ovens. And next to them, Shalom, the son of Holisheh, repaired half of the district of Jerusalem. 
He, the, the ruler of half of the district of Jerusalem repaired he and his daughters. Hanum, the inhabitants of Zoanah, repaired the valley gate, and they rebuilt it and set its doors and its bolts and its bars and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate, which is by far the coolest gate. I don't know why. We could just keep going, and that's what this looks like. So you read Nehemiah 3. It's a list of people you don't know with names you can't say, and you just saw that very clearly demonstrated. None of which make it on the top list of Bible names that people give their kids. I mean, everybody names their kid like David, you know, Jeremiah gets on the list, but I've never seen any of those. So a list of people we don't know, with names we can't say, doing work that honestly none of us have ever done. Like, most of us have never gone to an ancient city and, and with really rugged, traditional tools set to rebuild a, a wall. I don't even know how you turn rough log timber into, you know, beams and flat pieces of wood that you can make a wall with. I mean, I, get, I have a concept of how you might do it with modern machinery, but no idea how you would do it then. So it sounds a little uninviting and unexciting, doesn't it? But there's something when we look at this, when we look hard into Nehemiah 3, there's a few really neat things we see, and then there's something pretty significant that we don't see. So what do we see here? The first thing I want you to see is that people serve beyond the requirements of their station in life. You see, when manual labor gets started, there's a certain expectation in the ancient world of who will assist and who will sit it out. People of lower birth, poor backgrounds, manual laborers, we expect them to get to work because that's what they do. And, and yet, people of noble birth, of wealthy family backgrounds, the expectation might have been that they wouldn't have gotten to work. That they might have supervised, maybe donated some money, but not gotten their hands dirty. But when you read this list, you're going to find an interesting bunch. You've got Eliashib, who's the high priest. Arguably the most powerful man in the Jewish nation getting to work with the other priests, leading the charge, saying, okay, uh, we're priests and really all we do is priestly stuff, uh, but let's take off the fancy garment and let's go get a hammer and a nail and let's get to work. You have Rephiah, who's the ruler of half of Jerusalem. Shalom, the ruler of the other half. Malkijah, in verse 14, who's the ruler of a district called Beth Hakarim. And Shalom in verse 15, who's the ruler of Mizpah. So these are, these are like city councilmen. These are, these are important people in the life of the cities. Rulers, authority figures, prominent, powerful men. And yet, when the work needs to be done, they have no problem getting their hands dirty and putting on the work belt and getting to work. Regardless of their station in life. One of the best examples I've ever seen of this was a man named Jim that served alongside of us at a previous church. Jim is a partner in a, in a large law firm that has offices in at least 15 different major cities across the country. He plays a prominent position there. He teaches classes at the University of Houston. And yet, every Sunday morning for at least four years, Jim led the charge in the children's church. So this guy who was a high-powered attorney who taught law classes at the U of H Law School on Sundays would put on his jeans and his bright green t-shirt that said Faith Factory on it and he was in there teaching Bible classes and singing songs with 
with elementary and preschool kids. Because his dignity, his prominent role in the community of the business world had, had nothing to do with his willingness to serve in a way that other people would have said, yeah, I'm not doing that. So you see people laboring together regardless of their station in life. You also see people serving beyond their training, beyond their expertise, beyond what we might say their giftedness. It lists these people who get to work and you find priests, city councilmen, governors, construction workers, perfumers, goldsmiths. No one pulled the whole, oh, you need a wall, that's not my gift. What they said was, what needs to be done? And so imagine this, you've got this big project that's needed for the city and everyone jumps in and gets their hands dirty. So you've got the religious leaders, you've got political leaders, not just doing a photo op, but actually working. Hairdressers, perfume makers, goldsmiths, jewelers, you name it. Everyone jumps in and gets to work. Now, I don't know if I want to live behind the gate that the perfumer set, but I appreciate that he got to work. There's work going on, and regardless of their station in life, the question is, what is needed, and how can I help? You know, one of the things in the modern church that we've done, and if you're not aware of this, this will be new information, is that we took a good insight that said people have been gifted by God with spiritual gifts, and that's true, that's biblical, and then we've said, okay, now what are you gifts? Now, go use them. And somehow, subtly within each of us, there's a tendency to say, oh, that was needed, but see, that wasn't my gift. And so the work that might be needed to be done sometimes gets left done because that's not my gift. Ultimately, when people embrace a mission, yes, they want to use their gifts, they want to use them to the fullest, but more than they want to feel fulfilled using their gifts, they're willing to serve in the area of need for the project to advance. And that's what you find here. You find people, regardless of background or experience or training, getting to work. You see, the mission of God for the people of God, drew people together from all walks of life with a common commitment. That the people of God, that the city of Jerusalem would once again be a city on a hill that the nations would look to and say, wow, their God is the true God. And so they worked. So you saw people serving beyond their station. You saw people serving beyond their area of expertise. And then you see people serving beyond their self-interest. When it lists who went to work here, you'll find that that not everyone there lives in Jerusalem. You'll find men from Tekoa, which is five miles south of Bethlehem. Men from Gibeon, which is just north of Jerusalem. Men from Maranoth, a small village near Gibeon. Men from Mizpah, which is down the lowlands of Judah. You find men from Beth Hakarim, which is between Jerusalem and Tekoa. All these people from different cities. They don't live in Jerusalem. The fact that Jerusalem is in ruins is no threat to them. They walk away from their fields, from serving their own interests and their businesses, and they devote themselves to rebuilding the wall around a city they don't live in. And I want want to put this in context, because as you read the entirety of Nehemiah, you're going to find out that a famine hit the area at this time. So in a time of economic decline, These people walked away from their farms and cattle and herds in order to serve the kingdom of God. 
You see that? Not in times of plenty, when everyone's loaded, the 401k is great. But when things were hard, and even eating required hard labor, they were willing to let the field sit dormant for a season. Now, not all year, but for a season to do the work. The project took about two months. Not even the city they lived in. So you can't accuse these people of self-interest. I mean, it makes sense for the guy who lives in Jerusalem who builds the wall. Because his family's there. The wall is security and safety for his family. He needs to be able to lock the doors at night and feel secure. So it makes sense for him to struggle and labor for this. But these folks that don't even live there. This is not a natural or human-driven instinct. This is about them embracing God's mission for His people. This is not about some self-seeking interest. So they serve beyond their own self-interest. But what you also see here is that not everybody served. If you look at chapter 3, verse 5, you'll see that. After telling us how the men from Tekoa worked, it says, And the, next to them the Tekoaites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop down to serve their Lord. Right? Not everybody's going to come on board. Not everybody's going to work and pursue the mission. Some people will be too good for it. Some people will be opposed to it. And I, and I find interesting the way he phrases it, because he says, they refuse to serve their Lord. Now, Nehemiah never refers to himself as the Lord, even though he's the governor of the province. He never calls himself that. I don't think Nehemiah is saying they refuse to do what I tell them, because to be honest, Nehemiah is the governor. He could have He could have killed them. He said they they refused to serve their Lord. They refused to serve God. Because ultimately, when God's people embrace the mission that He's given them, a refusal to be a part of it isn't really just... It's not about, oh, we're disobeying what other people said. This is God's mission. And so a refusal to serve, a refusal to advance, to pray, to serve, and, and to be a part of the program is ultimately disobedience to God, not other men. And so the nobles there at Tekoa were unwilling to serve. It reminds us that there will be opposition from the outside and there will be apathy from the inside. And yet, the call is for the people of God to live faithful before the purpose that God has given. So that's what you see. You see a good number of people serving beyond their own interests, beyond their own training, beyond what their station requires. Just serving. And you see some people that don't. But what don't you see? This is what I find quite interesting, is that when you read this text, there's there's something really odd to me that you don't see. Because when we talk about the rebuilding of the wall, we talk about how Nehemiah rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. But what you don't see is Nehemiah rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. I mean, there is, later on in chapter 3, a guy named Nehemiah who's credited with doing some work, but it's not this Nehemiah. He's got a different dad. He's got the same name. So Nehemiah, when he sets out to tell the story of the wall being rebuilt, does not set out to tell the story of himself rebuilding the wall. He tells the story of God's faithfulness and the people responding to his call and laboring together. I don't know if Nehemiah ever swung a hammer, if he just served a supervisory role, if he was just the project manager. But I know that when he recounts the story, he doesn't mention himself accomplishing anything. I think there's a certain amount of humility in that. 
But I also think it gets to something important. Is that God has sent a leader to lead the charge, but it is a job that he cannot accomplish. Nehemiah can't go in single-handedly and complete this project. He's not capable of it. It would have taken hundreds of years for one man to have done this. Now, maybe Nehemiah could have petitioned the, the, the king for more money and he could have hired out all the laborers. And maybe they would have gotten the job done. But it's important to note that the people gathered together to complete the work. That at one point this was Nehemiah's vision and now it's the vision of the people that they've embraced collectively. It's no longer Nehemiah's purpose, but now it's our purpose as the people of God. And so they embrace the work collectively and they complete the work collectively. And this is where we want to shift and start to apply this because God hasn't called any of us to rebuild city walls. We don't even have any. It would be kind of odd if we did. I mean, if you drove up to Tomball and you saw walls around the city, people would probably think it was just a big cult kind of community. Because what, what, what is that about? So that's not our call. There are things around us that are broken. Right? The walls were ultimately torn down because of God's judgment on their sin, and we don't have to look far to see the brokenness that sin has brought into our world. We don't have to look far if we're open, if we see with spiritual eyes. So, so what is our calling? Let's start simply with, with where, as the church, we're called. Right? We've said it this way, that the Tomball Bible Church exists to glorify Christ by making disciples to reach the nations. Uh, what, what I would submit to you is that that's the calling of every church ever. That since the beginning, the calling of every church has been the glory of Christ. Him being lifted up among men so that men would be drawn to Him. Not only in salvation, but walking with Him and growing and, and learning to, to honor Him. And then taking on a sense of mission and reaching out to others in His name so that every nation would hear. I, I think, I would submit that that's it. That there are different ways to word that, different ways to say that, but ultimately that's the teaching of Scripture for the church's mission. And so that's what we're committed to. And when we talk about the church's mission, we're not just talking about an organization. We're talking about every believer who's ever been at the moment of salvation has been brought into the church and thereby been brought on board to this mission. Whether or not they choose to walk with it is a different question. But that's the mission that the church universal has been given. And every one of us have been saved and brought into that mission for the world. That God has reconciled us to Himself, the Scriptures say, so that we can then be agents or ministers of reconciliation. That God in Christ was drawing all creation to Himself. So that's the mission for us. In Matthew 28, verse 18, we'll go back to this constantly. In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus lays it out. I want to read that and then Acts 1.8 and then talk a little bit about these texts. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. Now, flip quickly to the right and to Acts 1.8. 
just prior to Jesus' ascension and return to heaven. I want you to see what he says. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So quickly, I want you to see something significant about the way these statements are communicated. In Matthew chapter 28, there's this verb, it's a command. He says, go. The Greek word is peroomai. And it's a passive plural command. So I say you go, but there's a there's an there's a strength, there's an energy, there's something that's causing you to go. And that's ultimately we know the work of the Holy Spirit is Acts 1 8 says you'll go and you'll receive power to do this when the Holy Spirit comes on you. So you're gonna go, but that going is fueled and driven and motivated by the Spirit of God. But he says, look, this is a plural command. You go. You, all of you, have this command. Now, this doesn't mean that we all pack up and leave, but it means that we embrace collectively this command of going and making disciples of all nations, that the disciple-making process, and that the reaching of the nations is a collective burden for the people of God. In Acts 1.8, again, you're going to see a similar thing. He says, you will receive power. The Greek word is limpeste. It's a future middle plural. We don't even have that much in, in English. So it's a future tense verb. He says, this is going to happen, which I find ing- incredibly encouraging because Jesus speaks with certainty that this will occur. But then he says, it's a middle voice. Now, we have active and passive. Middle is used to indicate self-interest. So if I use the middle voice in Greek, I'm saying, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do it for myself. And so Jesus tells us out of the gates that this power that we will receive is ultimately for His glory, not our own. That Jesus is sending the Holy Spirit. He's giving us power for His glory. But it's plural. You all, in Texas, y'all go. Immediately following that in verse 8. He's again going to say, you will be my witnesses. This phrase, you will be, is one word and it's esteste. Again, it's a future middle plural. You're going to be my witnesses for my glory and my purpose and you will do this. This is not optional. It's going to occur. You you can't even fight this because the power to do it isn't from you. The Holy Spirit's going to transform your heart and you're going to be my witnesses and you're going to do it in the whole world. It's going to happen and you all collectively will do this. Now, I want you to understand what's going on here. The ministry that Christ gave to the church to make disciples and reach the nations, He gave to them collectively. So what does it mean to say that this is a collective decree? It's not that each one of us is expected to get out of here today and to book plane tickets and go somewhere else. Certainly many of us could do that. And I would say many of us should. But there's a command here that says all of you together working in concert, creatively looking for a way to accomplish this ministry of making disciples of the nations. So make disciples here locally so that there's someone willing and ready to go. So there's people willing and ready to send. And then you go and you replicate that process everywhere they've never heard the name of Jesus. Which today, right, is roughly 6,000 people groups. 
represented 1.5 billion people who will never hear the gospel unless we take up the work of rebuilding what sin has broken. So that's the command. It's for us. It's for us. The New Testament gives the picture of the church as it functions as a body. In 1 Corinthians 12. If you're going to turn with me there. Verse 12 through 13. It says, just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in him, in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And we were all made to drink of one spirit. Now, we could go on for hours about that verse, but I want you to see very plainly that the depiction says this church, this movement of God drawing people to Christ is forming not just individually saved people, but a redeemed people to function as a body that we all have a part to play. This is really important in terms of how we look at this mission in front of us, is that it requires us working together to accomplishing. It requires us laboring together. Look, we don't all have the same gift, but we throw in what we have where we can, especially when it's needed, to to accomplish this mission. And so some of us might go, look, making disciples, I don't know that I can make disciples. I don't think I can teach a Sunday school class. I'm not a Bible scholar. Let me make this extremely simple for you. One is there are all sorts of ways to be a part of this church's disciple-making effort that may not be ways that you would think, oh, that's disciple-making. I want to give you a few examples. Uh, There are a team of people who get together early and they make coffee to serve you. Because we believe that caffeine is a gift of God's common grace to keep you awake during my long sermons. There's a group of people, they're going to walk around the building. They're walking right now, making sure that no one breaks into your car while you're here. Now, you wouldn't traditionally look at that and go, that guy's making disciples, but he's a part of the collective effort. He's a part of the organizational effort required to make our disciple-making ministries work. People serving in the nursery, changing diapers for the glory of God. So that mom and dad know those kids are well cared for. So that they can learn and dive into the scriptures. Praying for your kids, investing in them. People in the children's building, teaching your kids Bible stories, singing songs with them. Coming to VBS and making art and crafts with kids that will remind them of God's love for them. This This is disciple making. It's not what you might traditionally say it is. So that's an organizational component, how we do this. But there's also this organic that's just as you go through life, like Matthew 28 indicates. And and so that's simple too. When you come and you hear myself or one of the other elders preach, or you're part of a Bible study, you need to ask yourself, honestly, a couple questions. One is, how can I apply this, right? Because I'm being discipled, so as I hear God's Word, I need to apply God's Word. And then two, ask yourself, who can I share this with? Who do I work with that needs to hear this word from from the Scriptures today? And so let me throw you a softball. You're going to go, most of you, to work on Monday. And you're going to get a cup of coffee and probably talk to someone you work with. And and, and you could simply say, what would you do this weekend? And they could tell you about what they did. And and then you could say, well, you know, we we went 
did this for Mother's Day and that. And then we took mom to church. And, you know, they talked about Matthew 28. You know what it says there? It says that, that Jesus has, has died and he rose again and that he wants the whole world to hear the good news that he has died to forgive their sins and, and that we need to be a part of that. And so I'm just praying that I can do a better job of that. And Man, what do you think of that? Have you heard that before, what Jesus did for you? I mean, this, now, let me be honest. When you start to have that conversation, it's going to seem hard. But it's not complex. And so we've got this disciple-making where there's things that happen organizationally, function of the church, support ministries that are ultimately all a part of disciple-making. And there's this organic thing where we step out and we take what we learn here from the Scriptures and we just commit to share it with somebody. I want to encourage you towards that end to take notes so you've got a better word to share with somebody. Now, maybe you're studying on your own and maybe you've got better material. And I would say, awesome. But if you don't, take this. It's free. So we can make disciples. And what we've done, we've encouraged you throughout this kind of teaching in Nehemiah to be praying, to be looking for that brokenness around you that you can be a part of. And I know some of you didn't have to think long about what that might be. Some of you have kind of these relationships with kids that are wayward, that are walking away from the Lord, or you've got a a marital relationship that's strange, something that's clearly broken that you didn't have to look far. And then you're going, okay, but what I'm praying for is ultimately God to fix that. And I don't see how that fits in this whole disciple making and, and reaching the nations things. Honestly, I want my kid to quit being a jerk. And that's what I'm praying for. I get that. I used to be a youth pastor. I know what teenage kids are like. But that's a really small, small prayer request. I mean, ultimately, isn't what we want for that kid who's wayward to walk faithfully with the Lord, to embrace this sense of mission that God's given him? Isn't that what we want for them? And isn't what we want for that relationship to be where we actually get, by the grace of God, to be a mentor and a disciple maker to our own children? Isn't that what we want? And for you husbands that that feel like you're distant from your wife and you don't know what's going on in the marriage, isn't ultimately what you want to walk more faithfully with the Lord and to be able at some point by God's grace to help lead your wife in faithfulness to the Lord? And you ladies who are struggling with a husband who doesn't want to walk with God, isn't ultimately what you want not him to show up to church, but him to love the Lord and take up his God-given role of leading the family? Isn't that what we want? We boil it down. When we get beyond these smaller things that we think we want, that we're praying for, ultimately, the big picture is that if we love the Lord, we want them to love Him too. We don't want Him to just be nice to us. And we want Him to walk faithfully. I believe that everything we've been longing for is ultimately a part of this mission that God has called us to. And I want to encourage you to just press on. The beautiful thing that we saw both in Matthew 28 and in Acts 1 is that the power to do this doesn't come from us. It's supplied by the Holy Spirit. So guys, you don't have to be strong enough. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to win the victory. Because this table tells us that the victory was won by Christ. In 1 Corinthians, the Scripture tells us that we gather to do this. We proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And I want you to think about that statement. Proclaiming His death. That His body, symbolized by this bread, was broken for our sins. That the wrath of God was poured out on Him for us. Right? That by His wounds we are healed. That's what Isaiah says. 
So that this bread represents His body broken for us. And that this cup represents His blood that was shed to cleanse us of our sin. That's what this picture is. So we proclaim His death very clearly. But it says we proclaim it until He comes again. So in this proclamation of His death is implied the reminder of His resurrection. That He rose again and that He will return. And so we do this as a proclamation that Jesus has won the victory for us. The victory over our sin, the victory over death, and the victory in every challenge of walking faithfully with Him. That doesn't mean it won't be easy, but it reminds us that the Spirit of God supplies the strength for us to continue. It's not our own strength. It's not our own righteousness. It's not our own merit. It's by Christ's alone. And so as we gather to celebrate this table, I want to place two things before you. One is that 1 Corinthians 11 tells us very plainly that we ought to consider ourselves. That we ought not enter this lightly so that we search our hearts and allow the Spirit of God to move within us to to show us where we need to repent and turn to Him. I know for all of us that there's oftentimes ways that we've sinned that we're not even aware of. And this is a chance for you to take that before the Lord and to plead with Him to show you so that you can walk in victory that He supplied. So you can experience again the joy of the forgiveness that He offers. And also, while you consider that, not to leave your thoughts on that sin, but to take Him to the victory that Christ won. Because we will do this until He returns. And He has guaranteed to us that this mission, this purpose will be victorious. We walk in hope because of that. I want to pray and ask the men that are be helping with the Lord's table to come forward. Father God, we thank you so much for this day. Lord, a day that we celebrate the gift of children, a day that we celebrate the gift of mothers, but Lord, also a day that we celebrate the greatest act of generosity this world has ever seen. That as the song Amazing Grace says, that you did this to save a wretch like me. Lord, we can't look past that, that, that we are wretches, that that's an accurate description of us. Lord, a word we don't even use much, but that describes our broken state before you, that, that in your righteousness, you look upon us on our own works and we are filthy. Even our best efforts, the prophets say, are filthy rags. And the apostles would say, are piles of refuse. But in that state that you looked upon us and you sent your son and that he lived a sinless life on our behalf, completing the works of the law for us. That he died enduring the shame and guilt and punishment that our sins demanded and that he rose again victorious and that he will come again and establish his kingdom. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who long for that day and who do all we can to advance the kingdom until he returns. Pray for this time as we reflect before you that your spirit would be active, that we would let down our defenses and allow you, Lord, to just lay us bare before your throne. But that there in doing that, that we might see our own sin, but also see the blood of Christ and the work that he's done for us. And in doing that, we'd have hope knowing that the victory is won, not because we are strong, but because he is. We pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.